mentioned earlier, my name is Josh. If you are expecting Rick or Dave, I apologize. I am neither one of those. Furthermore, if you're expecting Jeff, I apologize on behalf of Scott. Although I will say this, we are here for the exact same reason that they would be, which is to bring honor and glory to God. So uh, we will continue on. Uh, my, my family, I, we've gone here since October, um, and it's been a lot of fun, but I say that to say I, I'm one of you. If this were any other week, I would be sitting out there with you, and so I don't want to be up here saying like, hey, I figured all this stuff out. I'm really good at it. You should follow me. I'm just the mouthpiece trying to figure out what this, this passage means and how it applies to our lives. So we've been, uh, we're going to continue on with this broken religion series, and we've been looking at broken religion, using that to talk about legalism. And uh, I'm going to toss out a definition of legalism as mindless devotion to religious rules. I think legalism is mindless devotion to religious rules. It's doing these things over and over and over with no thinking behind it, no passion behind it, no impetus behind it, just doing them. It's this mindless devotion for no apparent reason. And the reason why legalism is tricky is because someone who's legalistic and someone who is passionately pursuing God, the way they actually live looks dramatically the same. It's basically the same. It's just the motivation is completely different. A legalistic person would say, I do this, I do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. And it's because those are the rules. And somebody who's passionately pursuing God would say, well, I do this, and I do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do that, because I love God. So the outcome looks the same, but the intrinsic motivation is wildly different. Uh, By way of example, about two weeks ago, I started eating paleo, which if you're not familiar, basically you you eat like a caveman was supposed to eat. It's like paleolithic instead of all you neolithic people. Uh, So I basically it's lots of meats and veggies and fruit, and that's about it. There's no dairy, no grains. And when I first started, you know, it was a Monday. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be really, uh, you know, adamant about it. I had this goal, and, and I'm like, okay, I'm I'm going to eat paleo, and then on Saturday, I'm going to eat a donut. And that was my plan. I was going to enjoy this donut. I was looking forward to it. Um, Monday, you know, I'm eating my meat and veggies and doing this over and over. I'm like, okay, it's okay. And and then Tuesday, I started feeling a little bit better. I'm like, I feel good eating this way and actually like the food. And I kept doing it to where when it came time for my donut on Saturday, my big treat, I was like, I don't even know if I really want it. And I had this debate of, like, should I really get it? And don't worry, I still got it. I had two. And speaking of which, I, this morning was my break day, and I had two donuts again this morning. And I will keep doing this because it's just a special little treat. But I started actually liking eating paleo as opposed to just doing it and be like, oh, I can't have that. And it's crazy. Like, at work, all along, there's never been, like, anything special. And then, like, the last two weeks, there's been lots of cake and donuts and, like, cookies that show up. I'm like, what's with this? You know, things that are, oh, that looks good. But I've chosen not to. And now it's become something where I'm like, okay, I really just enjoy eating this way. And I think that's kind of the difference between this legalistic mindset and what it means to passionately pursue. It's because welling up within us, we feel like, okay, this is what it means to pursue God. This is how I show my my love and devotion to God. 
So to talk about legalism, we've been walking through the book of Galatians, just walking through uh, Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. And if you're not familiar with Galatians, it's basically handling one main issue. And it was trying to say, okay, these people that are non-Jews, that are wanting to convert to Christianity, what is the bare minimum of what they need to do to make them Christians? What does it look like? Because everybody before this had been a Jew and then converted because Christianity was basically a, a Jewish cult that kind of shot off and then just you know, became really, really popular. So as it did this, these people started hearing about it, and they were not Jews, and they were like, well, we want in on that. And they were like, well, you're not a Jew. What should we do? So they had conversations about, well, should they be circumcised? Should they be allowed to eat certain foods? What should we allow them to do? What's the bare minimum? And so Galatians concerns itself with this concept of what does it take in order to be a Christian? How can Gentiles convert to Christianity? So what we're going to do is we're going to work through that passage that we read earlier, and we're going to work through it kind of verse by verse, uh, packet by packet, and then we're going to talk about how that should help us see God, and we're going to really say, okay, knowing that how should this impact our lives? So going back through it, let's look at verses 21 through 23. Galatians 3, verses 21 through 23. It says this, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. We are plagued by the sin of thinking we have a better way. It's pride. I I would define pride as thinking I have a better way. And and so God had set up the the law in order to help us, to to guide us along. You know, it says in a little bit that it was our guardian. It was trying to say, hey, do this, don't do this. But because we think we have a better way, we we like to try to, to measure up. So while God had instituted the law to show us that we are in desperate need of God, that it can't make us perfect, we said, yes, it can't make us perfect, but I can be really good at it. Because the problem with legalism is that some of us actually are pretty good at it. For instance, I'm pretty good at it. I'm good at following rules. There are certain things that, like, if you look at me from the outside, you're like, wow, Josh is really religious. Like, I don't drink a lot because I don't really like the taste of it. Uh, I don't smoke because I cough when I smoke. I don't cuss a lot because I don't think it makes you sound super smart. Uh, I like to, I'm a very disciplined person, so I read my Bible, I pray, I, I do these things that, that a legalistic person should do. But because we struggle with pride, legalism gives us a way to compare ourselves, to be like, you know what, I think I'm doing better than that guy over there. Because look at me, I do these things, and man, I don't know, he might have had too much to drink, or he's a smoker, so he's probably bad. Or I heard her cuss the other day, and there were kids around, so she's obviously going to hell. And, and we like to compare and contrast so that we can be like, I think I'm up here, I think I'm doing a 
little bit better. And then whenever, you know, because we want to compare to other people, no matter who we're comparing to, we always like to compare to people worse than us. Like nobody goes, you know, I think I'm doing better than Mother Teresa did. Because, you know, that's unattainable. But then we look at, you know, the people who are super low down and they're like, man, I'm really struggling. But at least I'm not Saddam Hussein. You know, we always compare down and say, I'm doing better than that person. You know, I'm doing better than 21 Savage. I'm a, I'm a good guy. You know, and so we like to compare, and it sets us up. We, we look at these things, and while God established the law so that we could be like, okay, you are in desperate need of a Savior, we look at it as, you know what, if I follow all these rules, I can say, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. So God set up the law so that we could, we could really understand our need for a Savior. Then verse 24, he says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Before, there were Jews and Greeks. There were slave and free, male and female. But he's saying that that's changed now. There's a new differentiator in God's eyes. There are those who are of faith and those who are not of faith. Those who believe and those who don't believe. And that became the new differentiator. Rather than looking at these outward things, it became what happened on the inside. But we're still plagued by this, by comparing outwardly and looking and saying, okay, well, I'm this way and they're that way. Well, this makes me better. I mean, this is the the quintessential St. Louis question of like, where'd you go to high school? So we can kind of compare. Like, I grew up in St. Charles. I went to Francel North. Go Knights. Uh, I, I don't care anything about them. And that made me sound mean and hard. I'm not like that. Like, Go Knights, I guess. But uh, when I was in high school, we would look down at Francis Howell because they were hicks and rednecks. They drive tractors to school. Giggle, giggle. It's so stupid. Like, they were us. They just wore blue and gold instead of black and gold. And that made us different somehow. But we, we take pride in these little things that we have no bearing over. Like, I wasn't, hey, mom and dad, I think we should move into the Francis Howell North School District whenever we move to St. Louis. It was, no, we can actually afford a house here, so let's go try to live there because we didn't have a lot of money. And uh, one of my favorite movies is Gone Baby Gone. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's, uh, it starts out with narration. Uh, it starts out with narration, and the lead character is basically narrating. He just says, I always believed, well, to set it up, it takes place in Boston. And Boston is a city of neighborhoods, much like St. Louis. And and these different neighborhoods, they're they're proud of being from this neighborhood. So uh, he says this, I always believed it was the things you don't choose that makes you who you are. Your city, your neighborhood, your family. People here take pride in these things. Like it was something they'd accomplished. The bodies around their souls. The cities wrapped around those. And this is what Paul is talking about. The people in Galatia at the time, they were proud that they were Jews when it was just something that they had been born into. They were proud that they might be free when it was just something that they were born into. They were proud that that they were a man 
And it's just something that they were born into. He's saying you, you can't take pride in these things. It, it's a false viewpoint. It's a false way of looking at yourself. Because now the new differentiator is faith. It, it is belief in God. That is what gives us right standing. And then in verse 29 he says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, now we, I'm assuming everybody here, is not a Jew. That's kind of a wild shot. Some of you may be. I don't know. But uh, just assuming we, if you are not and you are a person of faith, you've been adopted into the faith. That's what uh, Paul is saying here, that we've been adopted into the kingdom, and now we are heirs along with the Jews. We are heirs along with every other person of faith. We've been adopted into it. If you've ever seen an adoption certificate, it's really interesting the language on it. It'll have all, you know, the who's the birth parent, who's the adopting parent. And then it'll say something along the lines of this person now has all the legal rights as if born to this person. And that's the same thought for us. We've been adopted into the family of faith. And now it is as if we are born to God. It is as if we are God's children. There's no differentiator anymore. It's we've been adopted in. We are part of the family now. We, we are part of being God's children. So then he goes on, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Guardians, they, they protect children. My, my role, I, I'm my kid's parent, but I'm also their guardian. And my role is to say, do this, don't do this. And I'm doing those things to try to set them up for success. I'm doing those things for their benefit. So one of the things that I do to try to help my kids is I... Uh, not all the time, because that'll make me sound mean, but I make them say, yes, sir, no, sir, that, uh, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And, and the idea is that they would do that whenever they're talking with an adult. Uh, and I don't make them do it all the time, but whenever I'm really trying to make my point, I will say something, and I will, uh, what's the question I ask, Anna? That's what I say every time. Do you understand? And I'm trying to get clarity on that. And there's only one response on that. Well, two. They can either say, yes, sir, and then the conversation is over. Or they can say, no, sir, and I will further clarify until we get a yes, sir. And so if they're in trouble, it always comes down to this needs to happen and this needs to happen and this needs to happen. Do you understand? And I want them to say, yes, sir, and no, sir. And the reason why I want them to do that is not so that they will show respect to me, their great father. No, the reason why is that I want them to be set up for success in life. And I've talked with my son about this in particular. Uh, because he's starting, you know, he'll try out for teams, he'll do these things. And, and I'm like, you know, if, if a coach is trying to decide between two players and they're exactly the same, you know, they, they basically play the exact same way, and yet one answers questions with, yeah, uh-huh, 
And the other one says, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Which one do you think he might be more likely to choose? And he's like, the one who says yes, sir. I'm like, okay, later on when you're trying to get a job. And there are two candidates that are exactly equal. And one says, yep, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And the other one says, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Which one do you think might be more likely to get the job? And he's like, the one who says yes, sir, probably. I'm like, yeah, I mean, not guaranteed. You know, maybe somebody would be offended by that, but I doubt it. But I'm trying to set my kids up for success. That's what guardians do. That's what the law did for us. It was trying to say, hey, do these things. Don't do these things. This is for your protection. This is for your benefit. The law was there to help us. But it is no longer, while it's still there, we're no longer slaves to it. And then he continues on in verse 4. And finishing out our passage, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We now have, if we are people of faith, we now have the Spirit living in us. We are heirs. We have been adopted. And so now we can look at it and be like, oh, it's totally different now. It's just faith. And that's all. But really, it's always been faith. If you look at it, if you kind of break the Bible down as it goes through chronologically, I'm going to put something up. Well, I'm not going to, but Jeff's going to put something up here that looks how how it's always been faith. And at first, you know, if you look at the Garden of Eden, God gave proximity. There was instant access. We lived with God. We had proximity. What was it that saved? It was faith. It was faith that saved, and yet we rebelled. Adam chose not to believe. Adam chose to say, I think I know better. I think I have a better way, and that way is not believing in eating of the fruit of the tree. Then God gave families. God God said, okay, I'm going to use families to bring together, to carry on, and to understand and guide people into what it means to believe and into what it means to have faith. God gave families, faith saved, and we rebelled instantly. Cain and Abel, rather than, which one killed whom? Cain killed Abel, right? I should have researched that before. Yeah. So Cain goes, you know what? Rather than, than allowing my brother to call me out on my sin, I've got a better idea. I'll kill him, and then he can't call me out and make me feel bad. And really, it's not a bad plan. It's just wrong. So, so God gave families. Faith saved. We rebelled. And then again, God gave a promise, faith saved, we rebelled. God gave a promise to Abram and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to do this. And he said, okay, so I'm going to have a lot of kids, but my wife's really old. I know I'll have sex with other people in order to do this because God got confused. God gave a promise, faith saved, and we rebelled. God gave the law then. Faith saved, we rebelled. God gave the law through Moses, and then Moses himself rebelled against that. Moses chose to say, you know what? God wants me to do specifically this, and I'm going to do it a better way. It has always been faith that is saved. God gave his son. Faith saved, we rebelled. Even at the moment of crucifixion, Peter, who is one of the closest to Jesus, 
chose to rebel, just like we would have. God gave the Spirit. Faith saves, and yet we still rebel. It has always been faith that is saved. It has always been trusting in God, choosing to say God has a better way, rather than thinking that we have a better way. So we started this morning by thinking about what defines you as you. How do you answer this question of who are you? And the Bible here says, well, you're a child of God. You're an heir to the kingdom. So, so what, what does it look like to define yourself as a child of God? We're going to answer two questions here at the end. What does it look like to define yourself as a child of God? And how do you live as an heir to the kingdom? So what does it look like to define yourself as a child of God? I, I think it's the difference between being and doing like children, they, they know that they're uh, a child. They, they know the status of it. And, and um, it, it's just different with, with how, uh, when you're trying to earn something. For instance, uh, I'm a woodworker. Uh, and I, I say that. I, I, I like building furniture. I like building things out of wood. But if I go up to people and say, yeah, you know, I'm a woodworker, they're going to be like, oh, do you do this? I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Because there's a relative scale. You know, you might think, well, I'm a woodworker. I take this pretty seriously. And then he's like, oh, well, you don't even have a lathe. And I'm, well, no, I don't even know really how to pronounce it. I don't even know what it is. Does it spin? Yeah, it's a thing that spins. No, I don't have that. Oh, you don't even have this? Oh, you're not a real woodworker like me. Or the, these other things. I, I used to consider myself a runner. In fact, I'm might even still say I'm a runner. I say that. I haven't run in ages, and yet I'm like, oh yeah, I'm a runner. And even back when I took it seriously, and I used to run a decent amount, I'd be like, yeah, you know, I run some, and I had gotten up to where I was doing about 50 miles a week, and I was like, yeah, you know, I run some, about 50 miles a week, and I was, the proper response to that was always like, wow, that's a lot of mileage. But then you talk to some people, and they're like, oh, okay, I do about 100, but that's cool, that's cool, you're, you're kind of a runner. It's a relative scale. Even with, like, organic people, it's like, yeah, you know, we try to eat healthy. Uh, oh, well, you cook in, in, in uh, non-coconut oil? You don't cook in avocado oil? Oh, you think you're organic, but you don't wear organic cotton? I would never dream of clothing my children in that. It's a relative scale. But with, with children, you either are a child or you're not a child. It's an absolute, it, it, there's no scaling at all involved. And, and I think how that manifests itself is this feeling of comfort, this feeling of belonging. For instance, when I feel like I'm part of the family, when, when I feel like I belong somewhere at somebody's house, I feel like I'm allowed to go in their fridge and pull something out on my own. You know, And, and I would probably still ask and be like, Hey, can I have some of this? Uh, but in general, I'm going to feel like okay to be like, ah, oh, I could really use some hot sauce and then go to the fridge rather than be like, excuse me, do you have any hot sauce? I just be like, I'll be back. And I come back with their jug of hot sauce or whatever. You feel welcome. You feel like it's not intrusive to go into their fridge to be able to do that. And it's a sense of belonging of like, well, I wonder if I'd be okay doing that. You just know. You feel comfort. You belong. It's this sense of just overwhelming 
comfort. Now, the difference is sometimes we do things legalistically to show that we belong. We do these things and we're like, well, I'm going to show that I belong. I'm going to do these things so that everybody knows I'm a Christian. I'm going to go out and I'm going to protest abortion and I'm going to post a verse every day on my Twitter feed and I'm going to make my kids watch Veggie Tales and I'm going to uh, do something else that a Christian would do. I ran out of examples. Or, you know, and, and, which is fine, but there are people that do that in order to feel like they belong, and there are people that do that because they belong, because they feel comfort. Now, the actions are exactly the same, you know, somebody watching VeggieTales because they want their kids to know scriptural truth, that, that's honoring God. Somebody watching VeggieTales and showing VeggieTales to their kids because they don't want them to see the vileness that is Gravity Falls, then, okay, that, that's just avoiding... Was Gravity Falls a too obscure reference? Dang it. It's really funny if you've never seen it. You should watch it. Unless you only watch VeggieTales and then keep going with the VeggieTales. All good. But we do these things to compare. We, we do these things to say, well, I belong because of this, rather than saying, I belong because of God. I belong because of what God did for me and because of the faith and the trust I have in Him. And I no longer need to prove myself. I simply need to be. It's being versus doing. Being versus doing. So what are the, there are certain things, though, that can make us doubt our sonship, that can make, that can make us doubt our sense of belonging. And, and I... I I think those things can be contrasted with sometimes these things that make us believe that we're sons, uh, that, that we belong as part of the family. And these things that make us doubt, you know, whenever God doesn't answer a prayer, when God gives us suffering, we're like, man, why is God doing this? Uh, I, I've talked before, especially in my community group, about how, like, whenever my car has problems or uh, when my washing machine has problems, I'll be like, oh, man, I must be sinning. Maybe I'm not living right. Maybe God is doing this to get my attention, and he's trying to punish me. And then I can ultimately, like, cascade down into, maybe I'm not even really a Christian, and God's just trying to let me know that I've never been a Christian all along, and that's why he let the washing machine break. Well, no, the timer just went out on it. And, and there, there are the converse of that where we can falsely believe that we're sons when we're like, wow, I was praying for this and God answered the prayer. God allowed it to happen. Or God has blessed me with this and this and this. But if we place our belief and we say, look, I know I'm a son of God. I know God loves me because he's done this in my life and this in my life and bless me with this and bless me with this. Then what happens when those things are taken away? What God wants us to be driven to is to know and trust because his scripture that he had written for us tells us that we are his children, that we've been adopted, and that we are heirs to the kingdom of God. Both those things, both believing that, that we're doubting our sonship because of suffering or believing our sonship because of blessing, both of those things are false viewpoints. The true viewpoint is that our hearts yearn to be with our Father. Our hearts yearn to be with Him. And when we're distant, we have this sense where we need something more. We crave something more. I have three kids and they all tend to respond to uh, uh, being, uh, they all tend to respond to getting in trouble different ways. My son will get really, really quiet 
And I'll be like, yes, sir. And then in his mind, and sometimes he will state this, he'll be like, I always get in trouble. They never get in trouble. And he'll go to his room and he'll be quiet. And, but he's you know, always trying to walk narrowly and not get further in trouble because he's a rule follower. My, my middle daughter is just beautiful and never gets in trouble. But my youngest daughter, she responds quite differently. She will, when she gets in trouble, she will look at you, clarify that she's in trouble, and then she will instantly start crying and storm off to her room, slam the door, and then she will say something along the lines of, you don't love me. And so usually I will give her a few moments to go into her room and cry. And then I go into her room and she's very funny. Like uh, she'll be laying on her bed. She's got this massive stuffed bear that she called Chubbs. And so she will be laying under Chubbs, under blankets, and I will physically go in and basically just lay on top of her and not do anything. And she's like, "Mm, mm," and she tries to fight me off. And I'm like, okay. And I'll start to leave. And she's like, no. Because she wants that intimacy. She craves that. She wants to know that even though she made a mistake, even though she got in trouble, that she is still loved by her father. And that she's still a daughter. That there is still this intense love there. And when I go in there, I want her to know that I don't approve of the behavior, but I love her so much. And it breaks my heart when she, di- when she misbehaves And it breaks my heart when she's sad. And I want her to know that that intimacy is still there. And it's the same with us and God. Whenever we've messed up, God is is hoping, God is asking us to pursue him. God is calling out to us. The spirit that he has placed inside of us is longing to be with the Father. And and we, we desire this closeness. We desire something more. It's not just an an emotional intimacy. It's the reality that God is close. This was the crux of Jesus' message when he spoke. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This phrase, is at hand, can be translated as close or is near, is able to be grasped. It wasn't saying, hey, it's coming, and soon we're going to be in heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is going to be there, and it's going to be awesome. It was saying, it is here, it is now, it can be grasped. Look at me, I am here among you. The kingdom of heaven is now, it starts now, are you part of it? And so even though Jesus has returned to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God in glory, we have the Spirit in us, and we even now are part of the kingdom. We are part of the kingdom of advancing the kingdom of God. Because you are a child, how do you live as an heir? What does it look like for you to live as an heir of the kingdom? It... it, it, matters then to what we are heirs rather than thinking oh well I'm an heir well to what are we heirs and if you look at the original promise it's in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 and you can see to what we're heirs this promise that was given to Abram it says now the Lord said to Abram go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This, we are heirs to a kingdom of blessing. We are heirs to a kingdom of blessing. Our role is to live to bless others, to bless the earth. That is what the kingdom of heaven is doing. That is how we are advancing it. We do that by choosing to bless the earth, by choosing to bless those with whom we come in contact. So how do you do that? I think uh, I'm a guy who talks about getting tattoos instead of getting them. And at some point I plan on getting them, but you have to like save up money and then go have somebody hurt you. And it's, it's a big process. So at some point I plan on getting them. I want two tattoos on my left gun and my right gun, just because there's so much real estate there. Uh, If you notice, I'm, I'm a massive individual, but over here, I want the phrase win the day. And not W-H-E-N, like win, like W-I-N, win versus lose. I want to win the day. And uh, I I take that as seize the day. But if you look up what what carpe means and seize, it means like take what's readily available. And win means go out and get it and make it yours. And I, I think that's kind of what it means to live as part of this kingdom of blessing, to win the day, to take take advantage of every opportunity God gives us to be a blessing to others. Whether that be, you know, we're we're out doing something and we see somebody in need and we just choose to bless them in that. We're talking to our neighbors. We're inviting people over for dinner. We're taking care of sick kids. We're doing whatever it is. We need to be about the kingdom of blessing, winning the day. The other thing, the other tattoo I want to get, this one's going to be in block letters, and this one's going to be in like a, a fancy script with like long serifs and stuff. And over here, I want pursue truth, beauty, and wonder. That's the other thing. I almost forgot for a second. Pursue truth, beauty. I should know that before I get it tattooed on me. Pursue truth, beauty, and wonder. Because that's what I think our lives should look like. First off, we need to be pursuing truth, the truth of God's word, the truth that God has shown us. We need to be pursuing that. But then God has also said, hey, I've created a beautiful world for you. I've created moments of beauty. Take advantage of those. Pursue beauty. And then they're going, I, I think, this is where I sound like a hippie. Uh, But I think we need to pursue wonder. We live in a culture that tries to empiricize everything, that wants to rationalize and quantify everything. And there are some things that you just can't do that with. There are some things where you just sit and you are filled with awe and wonder. For me, when when I'm outside and uh, I used to hike a lot, I spent a couple summers in Colorado. And when you get on top of a mountain, and you just see the immensity. And, and, and there's all these other snow-covered mountains. You're just looking out at how vast it is and how small you are. It fills me with awe and wonder. When I get out, like when we go camping, and if it's a clear night and the moon isn't up yet, and you look at the stars and you can even see the galaxy, and you feel how small you are, you are filled with awe and wonder. And I think being part of this kingdom of blessing is pursuing truth and beauty and wonder. 
and it's winning the day. It's taking advantage of every opportunity we have. Really, it's living out Philippians 4, verse 8. This is uh, part of my favorite passage in the Bible, Philippians 4, 4 through 8. I'm just going to read verse 8 for us, because I think this is what it means, day in, day out, to live as an heir of the kingdom of blessing. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about those things. Live your life based on those principles. Now, the truth is, you know, I'm like, I talk about winning the day. I talk about pursuing truth, beauty, and wonder. The reality is I suck at it. And if we're honest with each other, you probably do too. I don't mean to offend you, but you probably do. We're all bad at it because we're selfish people. And yet there are moments when I see glimpses of it. When I'm around somebody and I see, hey, I can be a blessing to this person, and it would be easy for me. The other day I was at work, and I was talking to a guy uh, who's he's an Indian guy. His name's Pardeep. Uh, and he's just, he's one of my favorite guys there. He's the nicest guy in the world. Uh, but I was talking about how we're going to, uh, my wife and I were going to a marriage retreat. We went to a marriage retreat last, no, Friday night, uh, and then into Saturday. And it was great. It was a lot of fun. But I was talking about it. And as I was, I was like uh, talking about who would have our kids. And then he's like, oh, that sounds nice. And uh, then he, I was like, do you ever go out on dates with your wife? He's like, no, if I, it's usually just one of us because they have a little kid named Sammy. And, and I'm like, oh, you guys don't ever get to go out? He's like, no, when my wife's grandparents came in or when my wife's parents flew in from India, uh, they got to go out a couple times just by themselves. But that was it. I'm like, dude, I would watch your kid for you. Just come out. And now he lives in the city. I'm like, come out. You could drop your kid off. We have a trampoline. My kids will bounce him. He'll get injured. It'll be great. But then you can go down on Main Street. You and your wife, you can go have a fun date. And he's like, oh, that sounds nice. You know, and I didn't know if he thought I was joking or not, but I'm going to bring it back up with him because it is a simple way that I can be part of the kingdom of blessing. One of the rules that uh, I've kind of adopted for my parenting is, and I got this, this isn't like me thinking it up if you think it's good. I got this from watching the Book of Manning. Did anybody ever see that SEC storied thing? It was on uh, Archie Manning and how he raised his kids. Uh, But uh, Peyton Manning was talking about like our dad was always willing to play with us, but we had to ask. He would never be like, hey, let's go out and throw the football. We always had to ask. He's like, but he rarely, if ever, said no. So now, like, anytime my kids ask me to do something, so long as I'm able to, I will go and do it. Daddy, will you come and play dolls with us? All right, let's go. You know, uh, Dad, will you come out and uh, play basketball with me? All right, I can do it. Sometimes I can't. Hey, I'm finishing up the dishes right now, but as soon as I finish that, I'll be out in a minute. I always want to be able to say yes as a way to bless my children, as a way to bless my family. We're part of a kingdom of blessing. So I want you, as you think through who you are, remember that you're a child of God and that you're an heir to the kingdom of blessing. And then think through each moment, winning each day, saying, how can I bless those around me? How can I bless the earth? Because that's what we're heirs to, this kingdom of blessing. The earth should be blessed because you're here. Let's pray. God, I thank you 
that you uh, didn't leave us far from you, that you chose to call us to yourself, that you chose to adopt us as if we are born to you. God, I thank you that we've been adopted into your family and that, that we're heirs to the kingdom of blessing. But God, I pray that the blessing wouldn't stop with us, that we would choose actively in each moment to look for ways that we can be a blessing to those around us, that we can bless the earth in order to bring honor and glory to you, in order to advance your kingdom. We love you, Father. 